I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Susie and I have known each other for a very long time, probably most of our adult life. And, and so I think you can trust me when I say that she is an extremely um, singular figure, both as a writer and as a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, whichever term we choose. I kind of like to think psychoanalytic psychotherapist most of the time to describe the practice, but you can correct me. And I think we're very, very lucky to have her. Back in the 70s, she started the Women's Therapy Center. And this was a time when women and psychoanalysis didn't get on terribly well. Most psychoanalysts really thought women should stay in the home. And if they weren't in the home, they should certainly have babies in order to be fulfilled. Now, we can discuss that, but that was the view of psychoanalysis. Um, and at the same, or very soon after, she gave us Fat as a Feminist Issue. So we had yet another take on women both in the private and the public sphere. And I think that's where Susie is really, well, almost unique, since Winnicott, perhaps, as a psychoanalyst, because she does bring what is extremely intimate material into the public sphere and uses it, really, to, to attempt to show politicians, public administrators, um, all of us, how we can think uh, emotionally. That was one of the great campaigns, the Campaign for Emotional Intelligence that she was involved in. How we as women can uh, somehow find a home in our bodies, bodies that may have been alienated from their many, um, well, from their fullness, let us say. Um, and, and she does that both in the sphere of the consulting room and in the public space. And I think that is really quite rare. Now, she's, as you know, written many books from Fat is a Feminist Issue to The Impossibility of Sex, and I'm not going to do a long list here because we really want to talk about In Therapy, which is um, an extraordinary project as well as a book. I mean, I think not since Winnicott have we had um, psychotherapy on the radio in this particular way. I mean, two million people listen to the programs, a million of them listen to it on podcast. And as far as I can see, it's an extraordinary way of actually rendering the scene of therapy and putting it before us in a way which, which is both alive and shows us how the uh, therapist works. And it's perhaps that working of therapy that we'll pick up. But first of all, I want to ask you, Susie, before I babble on about you as if you weren't here, what made you want to do this? Because it is, it is a, a, a very interesting and a new project to put therapy on the radio in a particular way. Tell us about the way and tell us what made you want to do it. Well, thank you. I, I think part of my quest has been to show what goes on in the consulting room. Another quest is to take that and somehow put it in public space and say something about society. But in terms of the actual fine grain work, of what it means to sit and surrender to the therapy situation and be with, with people. And I've, I've always hated the case study that was based on the idea that the patient or the analysande gives permission, because I think it's a nonsense. I don't think anybody can understand that 
I don't think anybody can give permission because they don't know the implication. And also, however they're rendered is a figment of the therapist's theory or imagination or the point they're trying to make. And well, we could disagree about that. But I, I know, we will moment. disagree about it. But <laughs> I, I suppose, and I'm, I will reference your, you know, John Forrester, who he and I agreed on the Philip Roth thing very much, which is Philip Roth finds himself in the pages of um, his analysts, uh, a, a journal article, but he's been transposed from being a Jewish-American writer to an, to an Italian poet or artist, I can't remember. And he's outraged because he says, everything about me is to do with who I am. And in order for you to conceal who I am, you have concealed who I am. So I've always been trying to find... He, of course, did put that analyst in the pages of Portnoy's complaint. Yes, <laughs> so, but, so. yes but he's entitled to. There's, different rules apply. No, no, I agree. And I've, I, was, I was very affected by that. And I, but I was thinking, I want, to de- I want to describe something about the texture, the feel, the pacing, the difficulties, the triumphs, the embarrassments, the everything. So my first attempt was The Impossibility of Sex, which when I'd written the first story, I went to Lisa and said, is this plausible? And it was a, an imagined series, of imagined patients, but told from the analyst perspective, who was an imagined Susie, much better than I am, who did everything right. <laughs> so that was my first. And then I've, I, I don't know, I've been trying to figure out how to convey what it is we do, because I don't have the skills of literary figures of writers who can convey human experience, but I do have the skill of a therapist. And I, and radio, using actors who would come in with stories that I had absolutely no okay, idea Okay, so tell of. us how it worked. How did, how did you conceive these I scenes? didn't conceive them. I think that's what's important to know, is that I worked with Ian Rickson, who is a theater director whose plays I have gone into over the last 15 years and discussed the characters or whatever anybody wants to know on his, in his, what do you call that? In his rehearsals. Workshops. Workshops. Well, well, while they're preparing for a play, one of the new one is opening tomorrow and it's the birthday party. So one time he came in and he said to me, would you mind if I took one of the characters from a play and put them in therapy with you for 10 minutes? And I said, not a problem. And if he'd given her a backstory, not a story that was in the play. And it was very powerful. So when I was approached by the BBC to make something on therapy, I thought, well, why don't I use actors? And Ian is a director. He can brief the actors. I won't know what the hell the story is, as I don't know when somebody calls me up and comes to see me. And we will just have a session. Now, I don't know whether it's going to... I will be told two or three things about the person. Like the first case, he's a judge. He's involved in a case. He's never been to therapy. And that's it. He's in his, he's what we now call middle age, but I guess we used to call old. And so it was session one, and that was what I was told. And so I did session one, and then I had to play it out, and I thought, wait, we need session two with this guy. But it might be somebody's come with a loss. I don't know what the hell is the losses. Or it might be somebody who's in a trade union leader who's... Um, so, so wait a minute. Did you choose the kinds of ills that they came with, the difficulties. You chose nothing. I chose nothing. Because if you're a therapist, what is really interesting is that anything is plausible. Any story is plausible. Because things don't fit. Human beings don't fit in neat ways, which is going to be the problem with AI in the future. We We have all these jaggly bits. So somebody could be morally this way, but... At another level, they've got a split-off part that acts in another way, and then they've got a thing that's very flamboyant. And So no, I didn't choose because I thought that's not what therapy is. Therapy is somebody comes into my consulting room. I might know them very well because I might have seen them fears. They'll tell me a story, and I think, wait, I really didn't get that whole thing about you. This is a whole other story. So it didn't matter to me. It was scary. It was high wire. So can I, can I just ask for a show of hands of how many people have heard or read You've all heard it, okay. So we, we have, we have a, a, a lot of experts in the room on what it is that you've yeah, done. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, um, 
you can come and criticize it because no, you no, might no, think. No, no, no. So we want to ask a little bit more about the backstory and about the choices. And so one of the first things that occurred to me as I was reading it rather differently, I mean, for me, the act of reading is very different to the act of listening. Yeah. And um, if I were a therapist, it might be otherwise. I might be able to listen in a different way. It's, not, it's true that I've listened to a lot of people, but I still think I would listen differently if I were a therapist. Um, but the act of listening to radio is, for me, not as precise and, and perhaps more emotive than something that I actually see on the page. And when I see something on the page, the emotion comes out of the language, not out of the voice of the actor. And so it's different. And for when I read this, I didn't recognize some of the things that I had heard because I had listened to them. <laughs> so that to me was quite interesting as well. So I recommend that you all buy the book because it's actually a very different and, and a very interesting experience, not only of transposition, but I think of depth. I mean, there was a kind of depth on the page because I could go back and I could see what had been said and, and so on. But in the book, I could annotate. I, I couldn't accept. Well, that's right. I, I couldn't on radio say, oh, I really didn't get this or I, I, I made a mistake here or I'm so moved. I couldn't do that. That's so the annotations to me were a little bit like a, a training manual yes, in, I think, in I think, therapy. And, uh, well, not a manual, but, but uh, you know, bits of, of the most interesting parts of what one wonders it is. Yeah, I think what you miss on the book, does. though, is you miss silence. I think where the Beeb were fantastic with me is that they allowed there to be silence. Well, I remember the silences, but what you do in the prose, which is different because it's so interesting to read this on the page and we never see it, is all the ums and ahs and pauses. And these are done in a language fashion. And that to me was fascinating too. Anyhow, one of the most okay. interesting things, I, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is about the nature of interpretation. Now, I've read a lot of case histories and I'm, I'm very alert to the problems of interpretation. It seems to me that you do it here in a way which is very Susie Orbach. <laughs> and I don't want to characterize this, but, but it's somehow both something which allows a sense of timing to come into things so that you, you put the interpretation at a given time when it makes sense to you um, in terms of bringing something out, but also in terms of moving the session along. But you tell me what well, it is know, that you're I'm doing. Well, you know, I'm not sure I even believe in interpretation. I don't think interpretation, you know, there's a, I listen to a lot of people in my field, trainees or people learning or, and I think I interpreted to her and I listened to what they said. I think, no, you didn't. That's not an interpretation. You just said something. You just moved the conversation along. You didn't actually use what in the Freudian canon would be an unconscious interpretation about something. So I, want to, I don't think I do interpret that often. I often have a view or a way of describing X, Y, or Z. So I think you're right. Okay. Well, there's a lot of mystique about interpretation. That's why I was asking you about it, because it seems to me you don't do it in that conventional um, way. In no. that conventional and I way. don't like it, actually, because, first of all, I think there's a power relation that I don't like, which is, hmm, I really get what's going on here. The reason you think that, the reason you feel that, the reason you do that, the reason, that, huh, you know, and look, so let me give you the worst aspects of my profession. You come on time, you're compulsive. You come early. Really? You come early, there's something, you know, you're anxious. You come late, you're dismissive. There is no way to get it right. As far as I'm concerned, the person comes to therapy because they're in difficulty, not because they need to know right or wrong. They've lived by a moral, moral code that hasn't worked. Let's deal with a completely different area of territory. I mean, once in a while I might say to somebody in, in a clinical supervision or, or study group, you know, I just came across a classic Edelpool case. That is so rare. In 40 years of practicing, I've probably seen three. You do mention it in the book. What? The but word Oedipus. Yes, At I do. At this point, somebody might say he is suffering from it. Yes, John. And I say, no, I don't think so. I think he's longing for something different. 
Okay, so interpretation for me is a kind of fraught area. All right. Now you see, I was I was asking the question about interpretation. I think not as somebody who comes out of analysis particularly, okay. but but really in terms of interpreting what is going on as yes. you might in a conversation, um, or sometimes as you might in a book, because one does interpret. I mean, that's the basic act that we all undertake when we're readers. We interpret all the time. We interpret when we're sitting with somebody over the dinner table and we say, you know, what is she saying to me? <laughs> and you make an intervention. Um, yes, but there's a different, and that is part of social discourse. Mm -hmm. And it's part of our conversation downstairs. We just had it. We were having a sort of high level gossip, but we, we turned it into an interpretation about somebody's behavior and how it, it impacted on us. But I don't like interpretation elevated to something of a kind of thing within psychoanalysis. I'm very unhappy because I think what that leads to is X number of interpretations. They become a form of fundamentalism. You're looking for them and you're not actually engaged in the process. You're not listening properly. Yeah. And you're not hearing. Okay. So now you, you're not, you don't want a traditional case history and you don't want interpretation. In, in the usual sense that most, most analysts would talk about it. So we're, we're setting the right terrain here. I hope you're all listening carefully and interpreting when you feel like it, but not out loud. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, I read this and I think, what is it that therapy gives people? And you say at one point, therapy is a place not to have to resolve contradictions immediately, to allow situations to bed down. Things are allowed to dangle. And this isn't a shortcoming, but a way in which psychic structural change occurs. So can you give us a gloss on that a little more? Well, I think as a working therapist, you might offer a drop or something of how you've understood something. Does it make sense? I mean, it's a collaborative venture. So you might say, this is how I'm thinking about it, or is this of use to you? I mean, you might not be as clunky as I'm saying it now. But you don't give like da 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 a paragraph. You give a little something. That, if it lands because you've actually understood something, then the person will, it'll be like a compost. And you might come back to it, you know, when we were talking about this, I thought, and then you might elaborate it further. And then they may say, yes, because I think that what, what that put me in mind of was this. I mean, one of the things that you say, I, I'm not sure if it's in the same seen <laughs> in the same encounter is that in analysis, in the actual act of therapy, things are changed through the, I don't know, the process of language of actually saying them um, and then saying, oh, look what I've said. <laughs> this is what I said. Oh, yes. What is that? But I don't think I'd just say that, actually, Lisa, because I think I would make the argument that you... I think that's th important. Saying is also affect-laden, it's feeling. There, it, speech is incredibly pregnant and rich. And what you're listening for is when speech is halted or repetitive or inauthentic for the person, not, not because you judge it, because you know it isn't right and you're finding words and blah, blah, blah. So yes, in that sense, I'm a Freudian. Mutative change comes as a result of an understanding in the context of a relationship which allows somebody to situate themselves inside themselves in a different way and for you to situate them differently. But I don't think it's just words. It is laden with other, it is laden with feelings and with a history of understanding a narrative that has been constructed in order to manage certain things, which may be thrown out. It may have to be expanded and it may get very knobbly. Does that make sense? Absolutely, but I, I never think words are just words. I mean, <laughs> words always come from a place and when they're spoken. Look, words in therapy have incredible valence. They're just very, very different than words, you know, I'd like a coffee macchiata. They really are very, very different because there's a lot of space around them. Or if there aren't, if there isn't space and there's a lot of rush, you're thinking, why is there so much rush? What, what can't the person hear for themselves? Or what, what can't I hear? Or, and it's a process. I mean, it's, it, it's a, 
One of the things, I don't know whether I say it in this book, but I've said it with you before, is that as a therapist, I discover words I've never, ever said in my life that suddenly come unbidden, or bidden, I guess, by the situation because it, the, that word is required in that place. Now, that's me as the therapist. What you say in your afterword to the book, which I found very interesting um, and very good, um, was that you talk about uh, therapy as, as a form of an aesthetic practice. And um, so I'm just picking up on your words here and thinking, could you elaborate on that a little? I wish I could. I, I wish I could because I do know that there is an aesthetic to it that is very deep, runs very deep inside of me. Well, it has a form because the form is always the same length of time. It has a structure, which is two people. <laughs> or three. Or three. Or okay, five. That was, okay. that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Okay, so it's got a form. It's got both liveliness and lacuna. It's got engagement and no, I don't want to bloody know. It's got leave me alone, but I really need you to look after me or, you know, push me around. There is a poetry to it, but it's not just a few words. And it's got so much tone. I think a lot of therapy is to do with is is tonal and musical in that sense. And do you think each encounter is different? Or is each patient, well, each patient is going to be very different. I mean, but is each, each encounter... Each person has a different me, and yes, it's all the same me. And what you get here is the same as what you get in the consulting room. I'm not really very different. I mean, I shut up a lot more, obviously, in the consulting room. But each person will pull, I mean, somebody will pull a sense of humor from me. Somebody will pull some intellectual aspect that another person won't. So they all, they invite me in different ways to engage with them. And it doesn't say static in, during the course of their therapy. So I can't really describe the aesthetic. I just know there is an aesthetic. Okay. Now, I see that. Um, let me just ask you, in, in, this, in, this, in this volume, you have some sessions which are single, uh, you know, one person coming to you, and some, there's a couple. One of the couples is a mother and a daughter, another one is a husband and wife, and so on. Is there a difference, or can you tell us a little bit about the difference in dealing with couples or dealing with individuals? Well, I think when you've got a couple, it's, it is radically different, because you have to hear both stories as totally legitimate for those people. You also have to watch the interaction between them and you have to feel the irritation that each one feels with the other one. And then you've got their families of origin or wherever they came from that created those patterns. So you've just got a lot of extra people in the room and you may feel very swayed. I mean, I often feel like, God, that woman's giving him a hard time. Why is she giving it, you know, and then I think, wait a minute, what, what happened to you? Or back, remember this guy's just given like a tiny little piece and you're thinking that's so great? Like, she's lived with frustration for years and he's giving like a little piece. He could do a lot better. So I have, I have to work through a lot of my own prejudices. Yes, and you have to work through the conflict in yourself yeah, too. Exactly. It's tricky. I noticed that the woman, you know, a lot of the women in the couples were really not very... Um, I didn't like them either. <laughs> but I did like her. I did like Louise very much. I did like her. But she was, she could have been described as somebody who gave him a hard time, but she was absolutely lovely. And the thing that was so incredible, I don't know if it's in the book, but this couple had come on the eve of having a baby and then they come after the baby's born and she'd actually had a baby, literally. And I wanted to see the baby. The picture, did I say this in the book? And I was completely shocked because, of course, she had a white baby and it was a mixed-race couple. And I was, like, so into that they were really the people that I didn't, I just, like, wait, wait, that's not the right baby. <laughs> you didn't put that in the book. It's brilliant. Right. <laughs> one of the women I was very interested in because it, it sort of comes out of, of one aspect of your thinking about women in the modern world. And I've forgotten her name. Helen. I think it's Helen. Um, has all the um, the aspects of a high achieving, wonderful young woman who at the same time feels this sense of, oh, I don't know, my daughter would call it inauthenticity. Doesn't exist is what I call it. <laughs> yes. 
what Winnicott would have called a false self, say. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I mean, this, you say that you didn't choose these I didn't. characters, and yet she comes into the book. And I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this kind of phenomenon in your practice and how it linked you well, I've had it in work. my practice, and I'm, I find it so painful. The actor in this case was the one who plays Princess Margaret in The Crown. She's a fantastic actress, or actor, um, just wonderful. Um, New Kirby, just Vanessa Kirby, just brilliant. And she wasn't playing her own type. She was playing two Ian's. I must have said to Ian, there's a phenomenon that's going on with young women who actually don't exist but who are constructed. They're very, very accomplished, but they don't feel they exist for themselves. And so he must have, it must have been part of an on a conversation. But she created that character. What was the question? A little bit more about that particular character as, as we see it in the contemporary world and its points of origin. Well, she's in her late 20s or 30s. She's a middle class, <laughs> upper middle class kid who's highly educated. Everything going for her works for commercial law firm for no reason that I could make sense of. Like her father. Yes, said. yes. <laughs> but everything that was about her, it was all, I suppose, what Judith Butler would say was performative. It wasn't, there was no way for her to be nourished by her accomplishments. They, she was simply climbing mountains all the time for the goal, but the goal didn't give her. And what I was looking at in, in my discussion about her was that this is a gener she's part of a generation where the mothers had not, and this is not to criticize mums, please, because that's not what I'm doing, but I'm trying to describe something, is that the mothers hadn't had a chance to fulfill their own ambition. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They'd foisted it on their daughters. They provided everything. But there was something ersatz in it because they hadn't provided their daughters with the sense that actually the world is quite difficult and things are quite hard and struggle is part of it. And I suppose partly what I feel very privileged as, as a post-war baby, is that I was part of the generation where we struggled together. Where it was not, we didn't have the notion of the individual and what we had to, we didn't have to be the brand and we didn't have to, to be on show the whole time. And we didn't ha we were actually allowed to contribute and we were allowed to say, well, how do I deal with my boyfriend because he doesn't do this? And, and it, the struggles in the bedroom or the struggles around who bought the flower or remembered so-and-so's birthday were struggles around patriarchy and the internalization of misogyny on both sides. And that's a very, very different situation than I can do it, I can make it, I am this, I am that, I am this. So case, Helen was very useful to me to be able to sort of riff about my sorrow about these young women. In this case, you give her a confrontation with death in order to... to I, I didn't. She gave me one. She gave you one. Okay. I really didn't. That's the thing. <laughs> no, I no, no. It's... Okay. All right. In, in the scene as we have it, um, a confrontation with death is what actually gives her space to think. And then she comes up with this most extraordinary line is that the boyfriend who she's considering marrying, wants to have a people carrier car because that's very useful. For, you wants to have two children because then you can get everything in the car and the equipment. <laughs> and it seems so banal. What, why would she marry somebody who's that banal? Okay, well, you'll have to read it more to, to, to get more of it. Angles. I wanted to ask you one other thing which doesn't occur in the book. And um, I was quite curious about suddenly curious about it. it. It's not being there, but it's something to do with the time. And, and um, none of the characters actually, uh, none of the women characters actually has an, uh, what we might now call a Harvey Weinstein episode that is brought into the therapeutic uh, chamber, into, into the consulting room. 
and I was curious about the lack, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's to do with the BBC. Nobody dares come on the BBC <laughs> at that point and actually talk about a Me Too sort of thing. And I was wondering where, given both our long histories of the ins and outs of, of women in our time, um, you actually situate Me Too and, and indeed the response of the French, um, what I like to call Livier, <laughs> the old women in France, um, and, and they're feeling that they've gone too far, that we're going to lose the possibility of gallantry, sexuality, desire, uh, flirtation. I mean, excuse me, rape is not sexuality. I, I just don't think so. I don't think it's anything to do with sex or the erotic. I think it's to do with hate, self-hate, misogyny. I just don't. I love flirting. I'm never going to give it no, up. No, I was giving you the French no, women's line. So, so. I, let me just draw my lines right there, okay? And I'm quite interested in the erotic, but I don't think the erotic's got anything to do with um, aggression around the way in which the Weinstein, etc., is. So, have you, in your actual consulting room, had any? Well, any, any, any. What do I want to call the, the kind of residue of what's going on now in the social? I world never don't have coming? that. Whether it's Brexit, Trump. Weinstein, of course, and I've got it with my friends, and I've encountered people who just were in the business and thought, I didn't know that was going on, and so of course I've got that in, but I've also got people who experienced rape as teenagers, and I've got people for whom it was highly problematic, and I've had people with abuse from childhood, so the question is, what's that got to do with sexuality, and what, what are those confusions about? Mm -hmm. I would argue that Flirting and the erotic and all those are really interesting things. They're not anything to do with what the attack is around Me Too or Time's Up or whatever it's called. But I do think we still we need to deal with internalized misogyny, both on the part of women and on the part of men. And that's what psychoanalysis has to offer is the way in which it constructs our relation to self and how profound it is and how we get how we think that's kind of okay and how we're trying to look after the guys who are aggressing or Indeed, women aggress on women too. It's not just men. It, mainly, it's mainly it's men, of course. And how we treat our sons. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's, I think it's a really huge moment, and we mustn't lose it. I'm with Susan Faludi here. We have to really deal with patriarchy. That's what this is about. But psychoanalysis can offer something about how we come to understand masculinity and femininity. And I suppose what I feel so disturbed about is being a child as I've said before, who came of age at a particular moment, I thought we, we were challenging that. And then we got hyper-femininity and hyper-masculinity, and it's all very fragile, and it's all very crazy, and it has to do with late capitalism. And there's a lot of money to be made from exploiting the kind of insecurities that people have and, and creating a culture of individualism where masculinity and femininity have become so narrow, so almost fundamentalist that, you know, I welcome all the attacks on the binary, thank God, but they kind of weren't where I thought we were going. I'm with you on that, but I want to ask you devil's advocate no. question before we, we open to the public. Um, the devil's Don't be a devil. Well, I want to ask you this question, which is actually a genuine question. Psychoanalysis and psychotherapy fall into the history of contemporary individualism. Correct. Right. How do we disentangle them or inflect them differently so they don't feed into this kind of neoliberal individualism that you're now talking about? Okay. This has always been psychoanalysis's problem. It arises at the moment in history when you have suffragettes, you have, or you have suffrage, you have Marxism, you have massive social changes going on, and you have the development of psychoanalysis. They're in constant relation to each other. And you have Marxist psychoanalysts, or you have leftists, you have Reich, who was very interesting in the beginning, before he went nuts. And you have Franz Fanon, who I still don't think has been, I don't think there's anybody of his caliber who's tried to understand the internalization of racism inside of the black skin white mask is just a masterpiece and it is as far as I'm concerned whether you agree with the specific interpretations it is a way of understanding how the inside 
is created, how the outside creates the inside, and how then we project onto the outside the things that are inside. So I think psychoanalysis, and then you've had the Frankfurt School, you know, so this, it's, and then you had feminism, which is where you started this conversation, which is Louise and I, who wrote our first books and created the Women's Therapy Center, were absolutely intrigued in how, what, taking to Beauvoir's point, how is woman made? How is the internal experience so congruent with things that are so against our interest? How do we explain that? And you don't have any other discipline apart from psychoanalytic thinking to explain that. And that's why I think it should feed into me too, or could feed into yes, me. Yes, I think it does. I mean, I've, there's several, there's one conference in London and there's one in New York that I'm already involved in which are about that. And they were very, very smart questions in them. Okay, questions from you now, your turn. Um, and one thing I was wondering, if I can articulate this, is the, the project, I guess, for a lot of people who've not been in therapy, has been, um, will have been, it would have revealed to them some of the workings uh, of that. And I was just wondering if you think, from the client's point of view, whether that sort of degree of inside knowledge will help the process for them, or whether it would hinder them. So sort of, you know, the point of view of they might go into therapy thinking, oh yeah, I know what she's doing at this point. Or I know, you know, well, that, whether I think that might that could be a problem if I was a nice formulaic therapist, but I'm too, I'm too much of a maverick for that. As you can tell, she destroyed um, the case history, but nobody does that anymore in any case. Then she doesn't believe in interpretation. <laughs> but, and there's more along the line. She does couples, she does singles. <laughs> So, no, I, no. yeah, I look, I don't think knowledge this. is a bad thing. And that doesn't, I don't think knowledge takes away from the other operations that go on in the therapy room. Because otherwise, training therapies wouldn't work. Because you're in a training therapy, you learn all about transference and countertransfer and enactment, and, and yet you're still completely caught up with the person and what they, what they mean and what your internal world is. So it doesn't, it doesn't actually exempt, it doesn't, it's just another feature. I think it's quite useful. I mean, I do, I do think knowing what goes on can be useful to many people because I think a lot of people think of I therapy as true. being slightly obfuscating and navel-gazing in the wrong way rather than actually a way to break through knots or tangles. Or That's true, but that, I, I agree. But there isn't a formula and there isn't a progression. I mean, there might be, if I'm talking to a colleague, I might say, and indeed, Louise and I wrote this in one of our books about beginning, middle, and end phases of therapy, because there is a shape that you can discern. But I wouldn't necessarily usually think that way, even though I know there is, it's another one of those underlying structures. Yes, probably more happens in a radiotherapy than, than... Well, that was what was interesting. Quite a lot happened. Then I thought, but you know, it's not so different than what happens in my consulting room. I mean, the only thing you can't do on ther in, in a radio thing is say is to have a really boring session. Although I think there is one that is quite difficult, which is Natalie, that we're just in the midst of befuddlement, really. Yes, it doesn't go anywhere. doesn't go anywhere, but that's a truth. I was thinking about the fact that there seems to be a growing dissatisfaction, which I'm pleased about, a dissatisfaction with the, you know, evidence-based, short-term, you know, through the door, quick out the other door kind of therapies. It seems to be that so the tide might be changing, and I'm wondering whether things like this, like being on the radio, where it's kind of it's accessible, a bit like, you know, making opera accessible to people. You know, it's something that's been so, so it's out of people's reach. Do you think that's, do you think that's true? Do you think things are, the tide is turning in terms of, you know, because at the heart of psychoanalytic therapy is the relationship and all those other stuff, that's not really so much the emphasis, well, the other is it? Or feelings. Yeah. Leave, leave those two things out. Yeah. Um, there's prescription, really, isn't there? Um, I, I, don't, I wish the tide were changing. I wish we had a National Health Service that uh, could relate to real need across the board. The research now shows that being listened to and listening to yourself as you're being listened to is really quite powerful and curative if you want to use those terms. But 
I don't think we're in charge of those things right now. And part of that is psychoanalysis's fault, frankly, because they didn't fight for it in 1945, 46, when the health service was being set up. And then they became a very elite service, and there's all sorts of problems. But yes, there's a groundswell of people who are making these arguments, as well as a few papers that um, do it. And I suppose even the royals, it's good to talk, is useful. Susie, there's one thing before the other hands go, but I, I did want to ask you. I found it very interesting that throughout this book, um, only there's only one use of the, one case in which the word depression comes up. And um, who is that? Do you remember? I, I, you know, I'm terrible about names. Yes, I do remember. I'll tell you. Richard, um, yes, Richard is definitely depressed. So, but there's only one case, and I, I and I was also very interested since we're you brought up the kind of wider mental health um, question that that all the people in here are people who are like you and me and just you know occasionally stuck and need a bit of listening to and and but but don't have any of the symptomatology you might say that would fit into a DSM categorization. They all have a DSM category. They could all have okay. a DSM. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Do that. Because we all have it. <laughs> we are all in every category. You know, if you ever open the DSM, you will find yourself on every single page. <laughs> or the ICM. That's the diagnostic. So Trump manual. isn't dangerous. He's very dangerous. <laughs> and the psychiatrist, I mean, I, th I think the, the piece that was in the Observer a couple of uh, Sunday before last was just fantastic. Bandy Lee, I think, wrote it. I don't like the word depression because it's such a portmanteau. And the whole point about being somebody who works with language, both as a writer and as a therapist, is how do you, how do you actually um, put some flavor on that? What, what is it? What is the affect? I know what that depressed affect is. And it's really hurtful. And it's really awful. But it isn't what most people come in with. What most people come in is they say they're depressed, and then you ask them about their experience. And actually, they, they have confusions. They have conflicts. They have, dis, they have sorrows. They have anger. They have pain. They have manic episodes. They have all sorts of things. But depression is, is, is too crude. It's, it's really, really useful if you're a drug manufacturer. And you That's want what the DSM was made for. <laughs> and you want to create, and I'll never forget this, which was about 15, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I went to speak in Ireland at a medical conference. We were all given these pads. Do you wake up early? This is to the patient. Do you have troubling thoughts? Do you sometimes not want to eat? Do you sometimes not want to talk to people? Da, da, da. <clears throat> Three out of five, turn of the page, depressed. You know, and then there was all of this wonderful stuff about depression in the 19th century and how we understood it, and it was all in journals and this, that, and the other. They weren't real journals. They were just made up. And that was the, that was the Prozac moment. So it's a way of not talking, really. I, and that's not to, not to say that I'm not aware of, in my own practice, of somebody who feels very collapsed or goes around and around in a, in a rumination that's very hurtful. Of course that you see that. But the... The job of the therapy is to somehow break that and and find another way to to hap to feelings because those those are things where when feelings can't happen. That wasn't a criticism, no. as you know. I wrote a whole I know a lot of a book about this. I have two really quick, super quick questions. One, well, one is about whether you think that there is now more scientific evidence to support psychoanalysis. So, lots of people talking about neurobiology interpersonal neurobiology supporting a lot of the theories and process of psychoanalysis. And the other really quick question was, given the silence in the Radio 4 series, did you ever get any direction on how long the silences could be? Because a little alarm goes off if Radio 4 is silent for too long. Okay. So I was always wondering whether someone's <laughs> warning you ahead of time. No. Uh, okay, first one, I think there was a period about, again, about 15 years ago where Everybody was trying to turn psychoanalysis into neurospeak, and it was really boring because we just had to learn another whole vocabulary which described in much thinner terms than we could describe if we actually used words what we thought was happening. Was it useful at a pseudoscientific level? Perhaps, but you know what? It's not where I want to go. Silences, no. I got to do the cutting. I mean, I didn't 
sit there with the thing, but I got with the producer. I said, you know, you're going to have to hold that longer. And he'd go, what? Fortunately, his wife was trained to be a therapist or a counselor at the time. And I, I, I said, come on, let's just risk it. Just risk that silence. And the thing that was interesting, a lot of the feedback that Radio 4 got back was that people pulled over and sat in the silences and listened to the silences because it was a form of tension, which was really exactly what it is in the room. It isn't always a form of tension. It could be, as I said earlier, it could be like a lacuna. It could be like, oh God, what the hell's going on now? Where are we going? But in, in this, it wasn't. Quite a weird question, maybe. Um, I wondered if in your practice, um, the natural world or nature has um, a place uh, as an element or a character or a relationship or, or even um, a disconnection from nature and the natural world. Um, uh, and if that has a place um, in That's psychoanalysis. That's such a lovely question. And I would have to admit that except in times of weather changes, noticeable weather changes, that I probably don't pick up on it. Now, if I was a Jungian, I would. Or I've got a colleague who's a, a Jungian, Mary Jane Rust, who's done a lot on ego psychology. She's a Jungian psychoanalyst. And I really like what she writes about this stuff. But I think I probably am too neglectful of it. But that doesn't mean I don't think there are things to say from my field that, that could be in alliance with denial, particularly, which is a different question than what I think the one you're trying to address. Well, I think there's a lot about denial of climate change and our environment and the fact that we live in such a built environment and we've got heat and we've got everything so that we don't, we're not engaged. But I don't think, I think almost everybody comes in and comments on cold, light, dark, that kind of thing. But I don't think I take it where I might if I were a different sort of person. Yes, one, one, of, one of my favorite of the cases comes in each time saying, what John. a beautiful day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was very interested in that particular case because it actually took you into the terrain of so-called transference love. Yes. And, and you, do, you do reflect on it, and that's one of the basics of, of the One of the best papers encounter. I've ever read. And we'll read it and teach it and read it and teach it, yes. So is it, I mean, in your experience, you do, you do this as well in The Impossibility of Sex. I mean, is, is in your experience, do... Patience. No, most people don't fall in love with you. No. They get very attached and interested, but I was in total shock when John <laughs> came in and had a crush on me. I can tell you that was not welcome, and I was I actually nearly beat the shit out of both Ian and the producer <laughs> because I was Kevin, because I was so cross with them because they knew. They were playing a trick on you. I thought it must have been their version of things. But you handled it extremely well, I, I did. I really did. I was really amazed at myself because I think I was lucky. I somehow kind of got okay. I don't know if I, I don't know whether the tension of it being a recording helped me sort of deal with it really well. I, I agree with you. It was, it was a very, very interesting case. And that case progressed very interestingly. Beautifully. It was like a short story. <laughs> would you ever well, you've, you've done the radio and now the book would you consider performing yes uh, I'm about to do stuff on Macbeth which is at the National I Ian and I wanted to make a play of some kind a sort of state of the art a social worker, a hedge funder a teacher a, a, you know that kind of thing again improvise but then make a play from it but Rufus Norris, who runs the National, said, nah, I really prefer you to first take my actors and put them on in therapy. So that we're going to try and do that. I'm absolutely petrified of doing it. I don't know. He'll, because, think of the problem they're here. Rufus is directing this play. Ian is another director. He's going to have to direct his, Ian's actors, I mean, Rufus's actors, give them a backstory that is not Macbeth. <laughs> And then I'm going to have to do it on stage. I'm very scared of it. But what did you have in mind? Sorry, what do you, you mean? I'm going to be doing like some sessions before the play. Oh, right. Before the play. Okay. I thought you were actually transposing Macbeth into... No. On the, putting Macbeth on the couch. No. <laughs> yes. On stage. Yes, on stage, but before the play. Oh, I see. Okay. So that, as an introduction, I mean, a kind of Not prelude. as an introduction. I just... 
a thing. But what did you have in mind? Well, that's very interesting, and that sounds like the kind of thing I'd like to come and see. I, I suppose what I had yeah, in mind Yeah, but I don't is... want to be there. Huh? You're not going to be there. No, no I'm scared. That's oh, right. Oh, you don't want to be there. Uh, no, I'm an actor, and I've also been in therapy for many years. And I suppose the two experiences are very, very different. And I was somewhat very, felt very, conf uh, had kind of par very conflicting feelings when I listened to the radio piece, uh -huh. not just because I knew most of the actors, but also because the instinct of an actor whilst he's at work is obviously extremely different from the instinct of a patient whilst he's on the couch. And I was wondering very much when I was listening to you and to the actors, to what extent you were aware of that instinct of entertaining, essentially. Whether, if you were aware of it and, you know, if you, and what you made of it, really, and how you posi positioned yourself in relation to that, because they're often when you perform two realities, one of the fiction and the other of the reality of the room that you're in with the audience and everything else. And, and I suppose being in front of an audience will, uh, will, will bring the reality out, because in the, on the radio you can kind of hide because the audience is not there, but in front of an audience you'll be brutally uh, somewhat um, uh, com confronted with, well, the reality of the performance. I think the problem, there's, there's two ways I could respond to that. One is, I wasn't aware of them as performers, even though they are, but having worked with so some of them several times, I'm aware of their, the things about them that they inadvertently reveal while they're while they're acting does that make sense yeah. so i'm aware of that i don't know if this makes sense to you i had to work very hard not to perform because i'm i can perform like this right i i'm used to public speaking or sharing but i'm not used to doing therapy in public and i had to be really careful i didn't play for not play for but whatever i didn't play to an audience and that is kind of a tricky thing because you've got an audience and usually you've got privacy. I wasn't so preoccupied with them, and, but I, I really had to sort of think, no, no, you don't have anything to say, don't say it, because you wouldn't be saying anything now. That's very interesting, because I watched what the rehearsals that you did, and I thought, Susie's being much quieter than I recognize her being. <laughs> I don't mean analysis, I mean as, as a being in public life. <laughs> and obviously you were doing that, you were, you were I was being a therapist. Yeah. yeah, because when I'm with you, I will natter along. But it's a really interesting point. That, and I suppose I've had a couple of the actors several, several times, and I really think I've understood something, which they don't know that... I'm sure they've understood something about themselves in, that, in those roles, as a result of those roles. Thank you, Susie Orbach, for a wonderful session. Oh, thank you, Lisa. You make the session, because if you don't do it, I, I can't do my bit. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.